And I've certainly had periods in my life where I thought, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? No, this is tough. And the loneliness comes in often. So it's all about controlling those inner voices that you have inside your head that start to whisper, but you may not have what it takes. And you have to listen to them and then let them go. And it requires training. And I'm still working on that at times, even after 40 years of, <laughs> of training myself. This is In Her Element, a podcast from BCG. I'm Corinne Lines. And I'm Suchi Srinivasan. Each episode, we have meaningful and vulnerable conversations with women leaders in digital business and technology. This episode, we're speaking with Margot Gerritsen, Professor Emeritus at Stanford University and co-founder of WIDS, Women in Data Science. It's an organization that seeks to elevate women in the field by providing inspiration, education, community, and support. Margot spent her time at Stanford designing computational tools for a variety of applications, including energy resources, ocean modeling, sustainability, and data science. Margot also hosts the Women in Data Science podcast that we'll share a link to in this episode's description. Here's Suchi's conversation with Margot. I'm Margot Garrison. I'm currently the executive director of women in data science worldwide. Uh, but until very recently, I was a professor at Stanford University. So I retired from Stanford and I'm now what they call Professor Emerita. But my full-time work is uh, with women in data science. That's amazing. And can you maybe just share with us, what is a Professor Emeritus and what do you do in that role of yours? It's an interesting title, isn't it? I mean, basically, it means that you've served long enough at Stanford to keep this sort of honorary title and some benefits that and privileges that come with it. So I can still advise students if I want it. I can still teach on campus if I want it. If I wanted to, I could still have an office on campus or a shared office. So there are just a bunch of, of privileges that allow you after retirement to stay in close contact with Stanford. Now, you've been in this field of computational science for a very long time, over 35 years. Maybe please share with us a little bit what first inspired you to go to a university and more so, you know, pick applied mathematics as the field of specialization. Tell us how you got started. Oh, that's a, that's a, it can be a very short story, it can be a very long story. <laughs> but what happened with me when I was in high school and started thinking about what I may want to do after high school, and I realized I had interest in many different things. I wanted to be an ornithologist, I wanted to be a geophysicist. I thought it would be great to be a civil engineer because I grew up in Holland and, and we have a lot of water protection works. And I wanted to be a mechanical engineer. I thought it would be great to be a cook. And, and at the same time, I really enjoyed mathematics, always have done. Uh, to me, it's always been like a, another language and a puzzle, just like programming has been fun. I started programming very late in my life because... When I went through in the 70s and 80s, there was very little opportunity to do any coding at the high school. And what I decided uh, is, you know, why don't I go and study applied mathematics and some physics and some programming? Because then I'll probably keep doors open to other fields. And uh, and that was I, probably more luck than wisdom, but it was one of the best decisions I've made in my life because these doors really did stay open. I've gotten back uh, after my math degree to many of these passions that I used to have. 
Oh, that's amazing. So the optionality of it uh, proved quite helpful to you later on. And now let's talk a little bit about studying and uh, going through college. Were there other women studying with you? Did you have women mentors? Talk to us a little bit about who's surrounding you at this time. Well, unfortunately, as I was growing up and, and started in this career, there were very few. My department at the university I went to in Holland, uh, there was one other girl in, in my class in, in applied mathematics. And how big was the class? Maybe 30 or 40. So it really was just the two of us. Later on, when I came to the United States and studied uh, for my PhD, the percentage was a little bit higher. Uh, when I got my first jobs, um, I was the only woman and twice the first one wow. hired in the department, wow. first in New Zealand and then back at Stanford. So there haven't been that many. And, and because there were so very few role models at the time, growing up, going to high school in the 70s, none of my STEM teachers were female. I think the very first time I had a female instructor was when I was in the PhD program at Stanford University because there was a guest professor who came in and she happened to be a female from Sweden and, and she and I became best friends and we've been friends for 33 years now. Uh, in fact, I'm just on my way to go Aww. see her again. So we see each other quite often. But that's that, that also to me just shows you how strong a bond can form if, if you just have so very few uh, women. That's amazing. Yeah, that's right. Is it fair to say that you've watched changes in the barriers and challenges women in tech are facing from when you started compared to where you see things are now? You've had such a vantage point over all these decades. How would you say? I wish I could <laughs> tell you that uh, the barriers and the systemic barriers that I experienced and my fellow female students and so on experienced when we started uh, way back when had uh, dissolved or disappeared or at least attenuated, but it's not really the case. I think if you look at the percentage of women in computational sciences as a whole, and then data science, for example, specifically, it's still about the same as it was. There are, of course, some exceptions. There are some places where the numbers have grown, but on average, when you look at nationwide statistics around the world, the numbers really haven't gone up as much. You start to wonder why. When I was 18, and so almost 40 years ago now, when, when I first started my career, I really thought, okay, I'm the only woman now, or one of the very few, but by the time I'm old, and now I'm old, <laughs> for my 18-year-old, old self, right? I thought, well, late 50s is old. Um, things would be much better. And it's not. And I think it's because there are there are several misconceptions and myths, despite the fact that we've been debunking them for years that are still so much believed. And one is that in order to be successful in this field, you must have a strong innate ability. So it's not enough to just be a little talented. And that keeps a lot of people from entering these fields where they say, well, I probably don't have what it takes. But it's been debunked so often because people grow. And, and if you have a growth mindset, you know, you can learn this stuff just like you can learn most things if you apply yourself. And the second myth, which unfortunately is still there, and it's Hollywood and TV culture, and to some extent, social media still strengthen that belief, is the belief that men have this innate ability more on average than women. What advice would you therefore give a young woman starting out her career, probably in our audience here today? What would you want her to take away? Any advice 
for her. It's really difficult for someone in that position who has for a long time had doubts about whether or not she uh, or they were were really prepared for a career in this area. They may have incredible interest in it, but they may not understand that, that they can do this just fine for people who don't have that growth mindset that you really need. It's really hard for them to just from one day to the other start believing that they can do this, right? It's a mindset change that takes a long time. Now, the person herself or themselves can certainly read up about this. Why do I believe that I may not have what it takes? Can I interrogate that a little bit? Can can I question that? Don't have those self-limiting assumptions. That's right. So the second step that, that someone can undertake is to find evidence that they're really not the only one. You know, on the one, one hand, it's, it's really sad to say, well, oh, there's so many who suffer from this, <laughs> if that's a good word to use. But at the same time, it makes you feel, ah, we can't all be right about not belonging, right? The, the, I see people around me that, that tell me, I also feel like an imposter. I also feel I don't have what it takes. And I look at those people and I think they're extremely capable. And that means that then you get together and, and connect Ultimately, you do need to depend on people to help you with this because you cannot do this alone. And so you need to seek these organizations. If your institute doesn't supply this, your school doesn't supply this in terms of mentors, go find those outside. And there are many organizations, thankfully, Women in Data Science is one, but there's so many women in STEM organizations and almost all of them want to help women and young women and girls overcome these barriers. And they often also have resources available, uh, workshops, um, programs that give you low barrier entry to to some, for example, like our Datathon is a, is a great example for that. And then maybe connecting through this, you can gradually start changing the mindset that you yourself have. But of course, just changing your mindset mindset is not enough, right? You really also need to be supported. So it's really important for students who are thinking about where to go next to, to question the support for women for historically underrepresented groups at the places where they're going to really find out, you know, is this a supportive environment? Uh, will I feel comfortable here? Are there good opportunities for me? Or will I feel on my own? Now, there are I've known women, I've been one myself, who said, I'm so stubborn. I'm going to just show people that I can do it no matter what. And that's how I got through. But I just said, hey, if these guys can do it, I can do it. And I'm just going to show them. And, and I don't care what other people think. But it's not always easy. And I've certainly had periods in my life where I thought, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? No, this is tough. And the loneliness comes in often. You do hit periods where you start to believe those negative inner voices, right? So it's all about controlling those inner voices that you have inside your head that start to whisper, but you may not have what it takes. And you have to listen to them and then let them go. And it requires training. And I'm still working on that at times, even after 40 years of, <laughs> of training myself. Well, thank you for sharing that incredibly transparently and authentically, right? You've talked about women in data science now a couple of times, so I want to go back and pull on that thread a little bit here. Can you 
just help me introduce and tell our audience, what is this organization about? What does it do? Why did you set it up? You know, help take us through that journey a little bit. And it also sounds like just looking at the smile on your face, that it's a source of great pleasure as well and pride, it sounds like. So I'd love to hear that story. So data science is an increasingly critical field. And let me just first say that there is no uh, generally accepted definition of data science. So everyone just <laughs> interprets it in, in his or her or their own way. The way we look at data science is extremely broad. So anything to do with data, data collection, observations, data mining, data interpretation, predictive analytics, uh, visualization, data-driven decision-making, you name it. It's, it's all part of it, including AI. Right, So we, we don't distinguish that. But that whole field has become so important and, and more and more decisions in our society are made directly or indirectly through the use of tools that are being adopted by data-driven algorithms and, and by data science. And so when you then look at who is doing this work, and, and who's making those decisions and who's benefiting from the wealth that is being created by this and the power that comes with this wealth, it's predominantly men. There are so many reasons why it's important, therefore, to have more women at the table. And, and of course, all diversities should be at the table. We focused on the women. It's a very large group. It's 50% of the population. A lot of the decisions that are being made for us uh, because of the tools that are available to us, the tools that are dominating, the tools that, that, that gain the market advantage, which we cannot control, a lot of these tools have not been designed with input from half of the population or you know very little. So as I was going through my career and I could see this and in at Stanford I started some graduate degree programs in this field and you know I've always been working on increasing the uh, representation of women I thought well if if there's one field where I really really want to see that representation uh, grow its data science for the benefit of everyone, right? To reduce biases to for equity for all kinds of reasons. And in 2015, there was a point where yet another conference on data science only featured male speakers. That happened so often. And that just got to me so much that with two collaborators, we said, you know what, we're going to show the world, <laughs> uh, or at least the campus, that there are many women, outstanding women doing outstanding work. So we just started Women in Data Science as a podium, a one-off conference, we thought, that would elevate these outstanding women doing this outstanding work. And then people started saying, hey, can you grow? Can you do a bigger conference? Can you do conferences elsewhere? We could grow in the Bay Area, but we thought to ourselves, you know, that's not the way to do it. What you need are local role models. You need women who look like you in your culture, in your region, talking about the things that matter to you and not the things that maybe matter to Silicon Valley or to Stanford University. So we said, you know, we can grow, but let's grow distributed, get volunteer ambassadors in who can set up uh, events like WITS under our umbrella in their own region and, and, sh and elevate women there. So we got a bunch of podia. We started with one, and then within a year or two, we had many, many podia around the world, and it was wonderful. And then we thought, oh, now we have a community. <laughs> it was very organic. 
let's uh, provide some more programming so that we can have a year-round engagement with this community. So we, we added datathons, we added workshops, we added podcasts, uh, the WITS podcast, we added um, a next-gen program for outreach to middle and high school. And here we are, you know, eight years later with this organization that, that reaches thousands. I think we're in 162 countries in the world or so. So that's uh, many countries. And it just all grew organically. And so at some point I thought to myself, okay, well, I, I co-founded this with these friends. I've been helping this organization for a long time, but it's become so big. I have to choose now whether to stay at Stanford as a faculty member or to just say, hey, let's take WITS to the next level because there's so much more we can do with this community and, and take this emeritus status that we talked about earlier and just dedicate myself to WITS. So I did that um, April last year. Congratulations. And here we are. <laughs> We've enjoyed, of course, having you here. Can you think about a time when you felt you were in your element, killing it, whatever killing it means for you, right? And just absolutely enjoying yourself to the point where you're so absorbed in it. Oh, almost every time I am standing in front of a class. So you go through these phases. So beforehand, I get a little nervous and I prepare really well for it so that at least I can say to myself later, hey, but you should have prepared better, right? But while you're on stage, for example, or, you know, another environment that I think is just phenomenal and makes me super happy and excited is when you're, you're talking to a group of people about ideas, about innovative ideas in research or, or ideas on, on the next programming for WIT or whatever it is, you have a group of people together who share a passion that's incredibly infectious and so uplifting and so empowering. So all of these times, I, I may be a little bit nervous beforehand saying, is this going to work? But, but once you're out there, something clicks and something takes over and you, you find your mojo <laughs> and you just go and do it. Sometimes I don't even quite remember afterwards what I said or what I've done. It's almost as if you're just not quite in, in touch with yourself yeah, completely. You're just in the moment, right? And flowing with you're it. You're playing this, yeah, you're flowing with it. You're playing this role to some extent. That was my conversation with Margot. Corinne, what were some of your key takeaways from this conversation? You know, here she's got this title of like Professor Emeritus of Stanford. You, you just can't even close your jaw because you're just so in awe of her. And then to hear her actually claim and state that like, and yes, I have anxiety and I battle myself and, and, and I have all this doubtfulness about like everything I've accomplished. And you just, it just is validating. And I know we've said this again and again with all these different really impressive women that we've met and discussed their careers with, but it seems astounding to hear that from her. And Sushi, what stands out for you the most about your conversation with Margot? It was really astounding when she was reflecting on her multi-decade career, how she thought that the proportion and representation of women in this very technical academic field had not really moved at all. And that situation today was quite similar to when she started. That was a pretty stark observation from her point. It made me reflect on themes that are somewhat similar and somewhat different across the more enterprise side of uh, things, you know, the corporate side of things, where 
It's true that I think maybe corporate America has made maybe a bit more strides. It certainly feels like it, where we do see a lot more women in many of these technical fields across, you know, much of corporate America and globally as well. But yet at the same time, it still doesn't seem to be enough. And that's just honestly still a bit sad. Well, that's all for today. This has been In Her Element, a podcast from BCG. Join us every episode to hear meaningful conversations with women leaders in digital business and technology. Thank you so much for listening. Listening.